Well, I learned very early on that you don't have one advertising method that tries to bring you 20 students a month. You have 20 that try and bring you one. That way, if one fails or one changes, you've still got the other 19 acting as a redundancy. Again, it comes back to risk management. Ladies and gentlemen. Hi, everybody. Good evening. Are you ready? Keep this frequency clear. I know you're going to dig this. Oh, yeah. Okay, here we go. Check, check it out. You're listening to the Martial Arts Media Podcast, where you, the martial arts school owner, gets insider tips and secrets from leading experts to help you build a more profitable martial arts business. Now, here's your host, the founder of martialartsmedia.com, George Faree. This podcast is the audio version of a video interview that was done on martialartsmedia.com. For the full interview with video and to download the transcript, please go to martialartsmedia.com forward slash 54. That's the number 54. G'day, George Faria from martialartsmedia.com and welcome to the Martial Arts Media Business Podcast. I have a awesome guest with me today, Damien Martin all the way from Brisbane. How are you doing, Damien? Gold Coast, actually, but... <laughs> all right, well, got that. It's, it's close. <laughs> it, it's, yeah, it's close enough. It's, it's close enough. All right. Well, that's, that's a good way to start my start the podcast interview. So let's, let's adjust from here on. Awesome. So got Damien on today, and Damien is a wealth of knowledge in the industry. He's also going to... We're going to touch about... Perhaps some sensitive topics in regards to risk management and a, and a few things. And um, met Damien quite a while back, uh, officially face to face at the main event in in Sydney. That was that was last year, and uh, we just finished uh, building his website as well, which looks pretty cool. SouthernCrossMartialArts.com, so you can check that out. So we're going to get started. So welcome to the call, Damien. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Cool. So to start right at the beginning, who is Damien Martin? Well, that depends on who you ask, but uh, <laughs> I've been training uh, since 1982 um, when I started judo as a 12-year-old. I uh, have uh, been continuously training ever since, been running teaching since 1987 and uh, currently running the Southern Cross Martial Arts Association on the Gold Coast with my wife, Hannah. Um, so we're a, a full-time centre in Helensvale. Um, primary focus these days is Okinawan Gojuru and uh, Okinawan Kabuto, uh, so weaponry, uh, as well as just the practical self-defence applications and things that spring from that and the other training that I've done over the years. So... And when did yeah. you get started with, with Southern Cross Martial Arts? Uh, we started that in 2008. Um, 2008, I left the organisation I'd been with since 1984, um, which was Zendokai. We left there after some uh, disagreements on future direction and uh, not wishing to take advice on how to run a full-time school from people that don't run a full-time school. Um, at that point, we were also running a, an RTO, uh, delivering uh, training to a, a bunch of government departments um, on 
risk management, self-defense, and those sorts of things. All right, cool. So risk management, that's a, that's a topic that, that we've discussed in, in brief. What do you see, how do you, how do you see risk management and what do you see the effects and I guess the dangers with running a, a martial arts school? Well, there's, um, just to back up where I'm coming from, like I'm an a, a OHS consultant and I have um, advanced diploma in security and risk management. Uh, worked in that particular space for well over 20 years. So most people tend to look at risk management from a physical point of view uh, and think of risk as, you know, someone falls over and you get sued or one student beats another student up and you get sued. And that's certainly an element of that. But other risk factors that people don't take, tend to take into account in our industry is uh, risk to reputation, Um and I'm not just talking about social media and how many reviews you get and all those sorts of things, but, uh, for example, if there's an accusation made of um, inappropriate behaviour within your school, that goes to the media, your school is destroyed. Uh, whether that uh, allegation is baseless or based in fact, um, there's several instances in the recent past where similar things have happened to people in the entertainment industry who were later exonerated, but... They'd lost their job, they'd lost their marriage, they'd lost their reputation, now can't work in the industry based on you know, false accusations. Uh, and there's, to be sure, there have been instances in the past where the accusations have not been baseless um, and schools have been found and reported to be lacking in the recent Royal Commission into child abuse in institutions where abuse happened within organisations and yet there was no child protection policy, there was no policy of checking on working with children or any of those sorts of things. Um, so those those are some of the other issues. Then you've got your uh, risks related to untruthful advertising, prosecution from the ACCC or fair trading in individual states. Like, for example, I've seen schools claim that they can cure autism. Uh, that's a pretty big claim and there's one that's likely to result in negative media attention. That negative media attention can destroy your own school, but it can also negatively impact all of the other schools in the industry. Okay, is, is, are they, so, I mean, because I haven't really seen anything big in the media. Is this, is this something that's sort of, um, uh, it's covered up before it sort of blows up type of thing? Or well, you know, are there things going on in the underground that are just, it's, it's going to cause some obstacles and problems down the line. Sometimes things uh, don't come to public light because there's out-of-court settlements um, with gag orders attached. So things like uh, defamation or if someone sues for something. Um, if there's a pre-trial settlement, uh, the details are not made public. Whereas if it goes to trial, uh, the details can be found on the, for example, on the Osley website, which is the Australian Law Library Index, uh, which catalogues all of the various cases that have gone to trial and come to a conclusion. Uh, what insurance companies will often do is settle out of court. So if they settle out of court, that's usually based on there's a confidentiality agreement that you, you know, can't say what happened or what the accusation was or those sorts of things. You just take your money and shut up. Uh, if you look at the Osley Library for things in relation to martial arts, there's a lot of disputes over contracts. There's a lot of disputes over trademarks. Um, 
but uh, a lot of stuff doesn't make public light that way. The other way that it can become public is if it goes to a criminal trial, so like an instructor as perhaps, uh, as has happened in a number of cases over the years, sexually assaulted students. Um, other ways it happens is if it ends up on a current affair, and I can think of a couple of big instances over the few last few years. Uh, one, in fact, in Melbourne actually led to le- change in legislation relating to knives and martial arts weapons. Um, the current affair ran a big story. It was a beat-up about a particular school and a particular instructor uh, who focused particularly on knife fighting. Um, and the next thing you know, the Victorian government has changed the legislation based on that particular um, story. Uh, the white paper uh, that was released on that, uh, rather than a regular regulatory impact statement, gave the specifics of why the legislation came into being and, and, and how that was influenced by certain members of the industry who um, perhaps overstepped their authority to represent. So, so where, where, does the, where does the problem really start? You know, because um, I guess the first thing I always... Like when I stepped into helping martial arts school owners with the marketing and so forth, um, I guess a big attraction to me was the ethical side of it. You know, like if, if this is what you practice as in an art, then I'm, I'd assume that's the way you live your life as, as well. Is there, which, which I'm kind of shocked to see sometimes is completely not, not the case, but... Yeah, that's... Um... <laughs> And I found that there's a direct relationship between the amount of times an instructor mentions ethics and the amount of ethics they actually demonstrate themselves, um, particularly some of the instructors I've, I've met and worked with over the last sort of 35 years. There's been uh, a lot of them go on and on and on about concepts like Bushido and loyalty and honour and justice and courage and these sorts of things, and yet that's lacking in their own lives in every way, shape or form. They, they use the martial arts to feed their own egos. Now, there's a, there's a lot of those, but it's a huge industry. I mean, the the martial arts industry in Australia, nobody can really put a finger on how big it is. The Australian Bureau of Statistics um, varies depending on which question is asked. The Australian Sports Commission only looks at uh, sporting bodies. It doesn't cover uh, all of those martial arts organisations, and some of which are quite large, that don't participate in uh, Australian Sports Commission approved sporting activities so you know if you're not doing sport taekwondo or sport karate or sport jiu-jitsu or sport judo uh, if you're doing recreational karate in a school hall somewhere you're not in the figures um so you know no one really knows how big the industry is so it's broken up some people are really really good some people are really really bad uh and they tend to color it for the good people but most people are just Pretty much uh, happy amateurs stumbling along, um, not de- not deliberately meaning to injure anybody or cause anybody any grief, but they do so out of ignorance. Um, martial artists tend to be quite credulous, so they believe what their teacher told them without fact-checking and those sorts of things uh, as a general rule. So if, if someone's teacher told, told them that a particular technique is... Um, invincible, then they've got no no reason to check that. Is, is the way a lot of people think. Um, likewise, if you know, um, I had a, a 
person who run, ran in the 1970s, a large martial arts organisation in Australia, probably the largest for, for about 20 years in this country, tell me that direct debit would never work because nobody would give you their bank account details. He was talking from a position of ignorance rather than being a professional business owner in the 21st century. Uh, that level of credulity, it just is a problem. Right. So, I mean, even if your instructor does these, what are these, what is it, these, uh, what's it, yellow bamboo? I think it's called yellow bamboo. Uh, you must have seen that video. <laughs> I think it's yellow bamboo, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, look, there's an awful lot of uh, martial arts schools out there where the instructors build up this reputation for being uh, awesome at what they do because they only ever do it against non-resisting students. Um, the real world is a different thing altogether. Um, so if they're not constantly testing the techniques against a resisting opponent, which is not the same thing as sparring. Sparring is, generally speaking, quite well-mannered and predictable. Um, if they're not constantly pressure testing through scenarios and, and those sorts of things, uh, or even combat sports application, uh, then any claim that a technique is invincible is probably not true. There are no absolutes. You know, um, people, martial arts instructors often tell their students, you know, if someone pulls a knife, you run away. But you can't always run away. And what if you can't run as good as the other guy? Uh, again, the absolute of just run away is not true. In all <laughs> case. You know, you can't always run away. Yeah. So. So, I mean, what's, what's the solution here? Because, I mean, if we, if we look at the sort of evolution of this path, right? So, let's say um, I'm an instructor and I'm training martial arts and I get this urge that I've got I've to create a school. You know, maybe and it starts in my backyard and I get a few students and then that sort of, you know, builds on itself. And then I'm like, all oh, right, I've got to get into premises. So, um, where's the big gap and how do you fix the gap of where all these problems occur with risk management? Well, the, the same thing happens in a lot of other industries. You know, you get a lot of people like they might be a very good craftsman at what they do. They might be a very good carpenter. Um, they make wonderful chairs and tables and, and, and their, their, their things are well sought after. So they go out and they then start, they set up a little shop, a little factory to try and sell their um, wares but uh, that shop might not be zoned correctly. So they might set it up, you know, in an area where it's too noisy and find themselves in trouble with the council. So martial arts schools, same sort of thing. Um, they might not be insured for manufacturing things. Somebody sits on one of the chairs or does something with one of the chairs that they've built and it causes an injury. Um, they might suddenly find that they needed insurance. Uh <laughs> You know, it's no different really with the martial arts sector except that the martial arts sector is selling uh, services based on, in a lot of cases, fantasy from what people have seen on TV. So there is no central body. Um, various countries have, uh, and, and organisations have tried over the years from the Dainippon Botokukai back in Japan pre-war and, and post-war trying to coordinate all Japanese martial arts. That didn't work. Uh, the Japan Karate Federation, World Karate Federation. Um, there's been so many organisations over the years try and bring all martial artists together. But 
martial artists are as diverse as language groups and cultures. You know, it's like saying that um, uh, everybody is the same, and they're not. Uh, the martial arts themselves are not homogenous. They're, they're very diverse. Uh, people practice martial arts for different reasons. Some, some people want self-defense, or they think they do. Some want to get fit, some for cultural reasons. Some do it because their friends do it. There's no one reason why people do martial arts. So, you know, we're not all covered by the sporting bodies, for example. Um, we're not all covered by international organisations and bodies because of the politics that's associated with those. Uh, it's a hugely diverse industry, and that's one of its strengths, but it's also its biggest weakness. So let's say I was a school owner and I'm, I'm not covered in any way. What's, what do you think are the first steps that need to happen? Uh, use your Google to, to start with and, and, and do a basic business plan. Uh, you know, most small businesses fail in the first five years. Uh, they fail because they failed to plan. Um, you need to do a basic business plan. That basic business plan will ask the questions that you need to look at and address in relation to planning, zoning, insurance, accounting. Like, what you know, what's, what's the best business structure for you? Are you going to be a sole trader? Are you going to be part of a club or an incorporated not-for-profit association? Are you going to be a company? Uh, is a family trust required? You know, you need advice from experts in the martial arts and the martial arts business sector like you do in any business sector. So I'd start with Google and a business plan. The business plan will set you on the right track for asking those questions. Sounds good. So let's just touch on, on advertising. And I actually want to, you mentioned Japan, and I know you've done a, some extensive traveling there the last couple of months. Um, but let's talk about advertising because, you know, and you, you mentioned that there's misleading advertising. And right now at the time of recording this, there's a big shuffle in, in Facebook, um, big change in structure in valuing more one-to-one -one interaction, valuing more local news. Uh, so there's a, lot of, there's a lot of changes happening. And the first thing that marketers always do is they shout doomsday. This is the end. Um, and marketers destroy everything. It's normally marketing becoming easier and people pushing boundaries, doing advertising and just it's becoming too easy. And because it becomes too easy, there's not enough control. And I mean, I've, I've seen this over the years in different platforms, Google being number one. Um, known as the big Google slap where everybody lost all their AdWords accounts, um, search engines being slapped. I mean, this is, it's just a trend. It's a trend of a platform gets popular. There's eyeballs. Uh, too many advertisers come onto the platform, make silly errors. It devalues the actual platform. And because the, the platform gets devalued, people's eyeballs go outwhere, elsewhere and they've got to protect what they obviously own, like with, with Facebook as such. So, I mean, that's, that's just things I'm seeing right and what's, what's relevant right now with advertising is there's a big cleanup happening. Um, and um, I would suspect that if a lot of school owners had to lose their Facebook accounts, which happens, ad accounts get suspended on a day-to-day -day basis, um, their business will go with it because that's their one, one lead generation source. Yep. So... Um, your take on, on advertising and being 
within within the boundaries. Well, I, I learned very early on that you don't have one advertising method that tries to bring you 20 students a month. You have 20 that try and bring you one. That way, if one fails or one changes, you've still got the other 19 acting as a redundancy. Again, it comes back to risk management. Um, to have all of your eggs in the Facebook market or, or the Facebook uh, basket, so to speak, uh, is a bit short-sighted. You, you need to have those other uh, methods out there. You, you've still got um, things like referrals, uh, signage, um, people just knowing where you are. Uh, you know, there, there's a lot of other methods. Some things don't work anymore. Uh, Yellow Pages, for example, doesn't work for us at all. Uh, because we test and measure pretty much everything. Um, flyers in the letterbox don't work anymore. Um, again, because we, we know that because we test and measure. We used to do uh, the first four weeks of every year, we'd do 10,000 flyers uh, a week around our local area um, and then watch the associated um, web hits go up as people typed in the web address and, and looked at our website and everything. Um, that just stopped. Uh, it's not like it dwindled. It's one year it worked, the next year it did not, or the year after. Um, so if we were putting all of our eggs in that particular basket, that would have been disastrous for us as, a, as an organisation. Uh, you've just got to be somewhat diversified while staying on, on trend for the more um, current ways that people shop and, and think. Uh, you know, Maybe Instagram will work for you in your area. Maybe it won't. Maybe Facebook is good in your area. Maybe it's not. Maybe Google Ads work, AdWords works better. Maybe you're in a country town and the newspaper advertising still works. You know, there's a lot of variables. You've got to know your own marketplace, um, your own client base, and who comes to your school and who buys your services. Uh, a lot of people don't. They try and take a cookie-cutter approach. And uh, you know, for years, everyone was buying their ads from organizations in America, NAPMA, um, MA Success, those sorts of things. Uh, and one thing I found early on in the, in the 90s was that if there's an American flag on a uniform in an ad, that ad doesn't work in Australia. might work in America, but it doesn't work here. And that, So you learn what your individual market requirements are and you've always got to be testing and measuring. Yeah, so true. We've, we've, I mean, we've seen that with... The same franchise, same, same marketing, same everything. Two different locations, two different results. Um, everything the same. And and it, you know we always talk about in our in my presentation. I talk about five levels of your five levels of awareness. I call it the five stages of the student sign up cycle. You know there's there's your marketing, but there's always the message that was received before and leading up to actually seeing your marketing. Um, and that's going to also affect the actual the actual response at the end of the day. So, Damien, tell me about Japan. Tell me about your trip, just to change gears here. Tell me about your, your trip to Japan and, and what, you, what you get out of that experience. Well, we go to uh, Okinawa, uh, which obviously is part of Japan uh, every year to train uh, with our uh, Goju Sensei and with our Kabuto Sensei, um, two different organizations, but closely related. Uh, we just love the place, we love the people, we love the training, uh, and we like, uh, or I particularly like, um, those light bulb moments that you get where practices within the martial arts that 
are remnants of where it came from, suddenly their purpose becomes apparent. So, uh, for example, a lot of the, the, the stories and things that are passed down from in martial arts schools in Australia, at least, come from publications from the 1960s that were written by people that actually had very limited exposure to what they were writing about. Uh, so these stories took on a life of their own. So there was the, you know, the, the old Okinawan practice, for example, of practicing their training, their martial arts, uh, at the tombs of their family. So family tombs is a big thing uh, in Okinawa, and it was an even bigger thing pre-World War II. Uh, and the theory was that they were, you know, spiritually connecting with their ancestors and all those sorts of things. And when we spoke to the Okinawans about it, uh, apart from the, the sort of raised eyebrows to work out whether we were taking the piss, uh, it was, well, the grass is cut short there. There's no snakes. <laughs> Everywhere else, you could get bitten by a snake. And it's like, ah, huh, that's very pragmatic. Uh, there's a lot of those sorts of things. And, and being a bit of a, a, a karate nerd, and uh, amateur historian, I, I really appreciate those moments. But the people are the main thing. The people. So, so what do you? What are the sort of key things that you that you learn that you come back and you take a different approach in your school? Well, our journey with the the Okinawan karate, like I was doing Zendokai up until uh, two thousand and eight, but in nineteen ninety nine, I started with uh, Okinawan Goju as well. And my idea was to refine the, the kata, uh, make them better, make them more practical, make them more understandable. Because if we've been doing this particular template of movements for the last 100, 150 years, uh, it must have had a purpose. So trying to find the purpose, trying to find the applications was what sort of drove me down that path. So this year on the way to Okinawa, we also went to China, to uh, Fuzhou, uh, which is where... Um, Kanri Agashiana, who was uh, Chojin Miyagi, the founder of Goju's teacher, uh, trained. And we, we found the, or had found through a couple of years of research, the school where he trained. And we wanted to go there and see what they were doing and why they were doing it and how closely related it was to what we were doing. And I was pleasantly surprised that what they were doing was not that far removed from what we were doing. Some of it looked different. But the applications were the same. Uh, the hip movement, the arm movement, the, the, the actual applications of the different forms was the, was the same, um, which for me as a, as a martial arts teacher, it was, it was good. I quite enjoyed that connection. Um, so we're still fact-checking some of the things that they, they told us uh, and we'll hopefully be publishing some um, information it's a little bit of a historical uh, addition, if you will, um, to the current sort of communal knowledge on the origins of, of karate in Okinawa and the origins of Goju-ryu in particular. It sounds like you have a book coming out. I wouldn't say a book. Um, maybe a couple of articles, but uh, I, I don't know. It's, I don't think it's exciting enough for most people to justify the costs of publishing. <laughs> I, 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 think, I think you'll be pleasantly surprised. <laughs> Well, based on the uh, the reaction I've had from some quarters on the Blitz article that was done about this, uh, the December-January issue, um, what I've found is by, by saying certain things, it, it, it challenges people's beliefs to the core uh, and people's beliefs about their martial arts 
is very akin to people's beliefs about their religion. So uh, we need to make sure that we're, all our ducks are in a row. Yeah, yeah, I, I can see, I can see you opening a big can of worms when, uh, yeah, especially if you touch on things like you mentioned with the tombstones and and just things that people are based their entire martial arts career upon, and now it sort of gets challenged. Yeah. Yeah, I think the um, the Kung Fu TV series in the nineteen seventies, and then uh, you know the later the Ninja phase, and and all of those things that have been trends through the martial arts over the years, have all left their their little um, remnants in popular culture, and the way people perceive martial arts and and what they can be. You know, like there's this common perception that that karate is uh, an antique. Uh, and is not street effective. And if you're not doing Krav Maga, then you know you, you, you're not doing the right thing. Uh, or even in the MMA circles. But uh, uh, the core of a lot of Krav Maga technique came from karate. Krav Maga is a mixed martial art or a hybrid martial art. Um, it forgets where some of its core techniques come from. Uh, the MMA people that talk about you know the the dominance of MMA fighters and this that and the other forget that guys like George St-Pierre or Lyoto Mashida and those guys were karate practitioners primarily. You know, everything has its place. Um, so it's just another trend. Yeah, so, so how would, and how do you, I mean, let's say I'm a, I'm a prospect and I walk into Southern Cross Martial Arts and that's my, my thinking. My thinking is I've come from, you know, I'm looking at UFC and I'm, I've got a certain perception and that's sort of what I see as, a, as what I want or maybe what I don't want. How do you have that conversation? Um, look, we, uh, as much as possible, we put them on the floor and they start to train. Uh, and it's more about feeling and moving than it is about talking. The only way to change people's perceptions is to show them. Um, you can tell them till you're blue in the face, but people are so used to marketers lying to them now that uh, they don't believe you. So we get them on the floor and show them why we do what we do. Uh, we don't beat anybody up or anything like that, don't get me wrong. Um, but get them on the floor to train, to feel their body moving and take it from there. And look, what we do is not for everybody. Some people, some younger people want to spar more, for example. I did when I was in my 20s. Um, now we're fully cognizant of the fact that people have jobs to go to and, and, and an income to, to make. Uh, they don't want to live like, you know, karate hobos like we did with broken bits and pieces all the time. Um, it's a different world. And we know more as well. Awesome. David, I'm going to, I'm going to ask one, I want to ask you one more question and I'm, I'm, uh, now that I think of it, this could actually probably spur on a whole different episode as such. But you, you mentioned that you work with um, kids with autism. Yep. Um, now, this could probably be a much longer conversation, but I, I, I just wanted to touch on it. Um, what advice would you have for people that work with people with kids with autism or special needs? Well, we have a saying in the in the the world of those that work with kids with autism, basically, once you've met one autistic kid, you've met one autistic kid, meaning basically that they're all different. While there are stereotypical behaviours, uh, 
each child is different, is motivated differently, works differently mentally, physically, and so on. Uh, that don't make assumptions and don't jump to conclusions. And, and the first thing that people need to do is get educated. Uh, there's plenty of programs out there on what autism actually is. Uh, don't rely on memes that you read on Facebook. Um, and actually, uh, to be blunt, get a clue. Uh, there's a lot of people now claiming that, that, that they specialize in teaching autistic kids, uh, and we pick up the pieces. Um, yelling at them, screaming at them. Um, you know, it, it's ridiculous what some people are doing. And it's, oh, this is the tradition. Really? You know, it's not. <laughs> you mean I can't believe all the memes I see on Facebook? Uh, no. <laughs> uh, Facebook has a, is, a, is a wonderful way of connecting the world and, and so on, uh, but it can also do so much harm. Um, and some of these memes that are floating around, you know, like there's um, there's a correlation uh, being found between um, gut flora and autism. Now, correlation does not indicate causation. All right, it's just something that they want to that they need to investigate further. But you've got people out there that are advocating kids with or parents with autistic children get them to drink bleach, for example, because it'll kill the bad microbes and so on. And it's horrendously harmful. But if you've worked with some of the parents that are so desperate to help their child, some of them try it based on some crap they see on the internet. It just so yeah, I've seen martial arts schools advertise that they can cure autism. Um, if that's not a potential a current affair episode, I don't know what is. Uh, you know, martial arts is good for children on the spectrum if they're working with caring and educated instructors because it has its consistency. Things are done pretty much the same way uh, each class, as in your warm-ups and those sorts of things. There's a predictability about it that makes them feel comfortable. And uh, we've had some amazing successes with some of our autistic kids. With uh, one of our junior black belts now, he's 12. He's been with us for eight years. Um, you know, his whole persona has changed based on the lessons that he's learned for dealing with other people, just out of counting out loud in class and things like that. Fascinating. Yeah, so I'd say that my main advice would be to get educated and get a clue um, rather than getting your education by getting on, uh, say, Facebook. On a, on a, and I see this on a daily basis, uh, and I've, I've started deleting these groups. But uh, they'll get on a martial arts business group, for example, and say, um, uh, I've got an autistic kid who's just joined my class. Uh, what do I do? And you'll get all of this stuff will be regurgitated by people. Uh, and it all tends to be very stereotypical. Uh, it doesn't take into account that every autistic child is just as much an individual or unique as every other child that we teach. So, you know, we need to get to know them. Um, a lot of kids on with the autism spectrum uh, have sensory processing disorders. So the idea of uh, ki or ki-eyeing in class if that child is uh, sensitive to noise, is going to be a major barrier. Um, or they might be, they might have sensory processing issues with things touching their head. So if you wear helmets in class for sparring, that might be the issue, and you need to work a way around that. Uh, there's so many different things. Well, yeah, it, it's, it seems like really, really putting aside everything, your practice and your tradition of, of what you do, 
and really customizing it to what's going to what's going to be the obstacles with this child and really being paying a real close ear on the ground yep. having a close ear on the ground to really understand what their needs and what their obstacles are and how they how this tradition is going to affect them yeah and it's not a matter of lowering your standards it's a matter of uh, lowering, your, lowering your time expectations and having more patience. But just because somebody processes information in a different way doesn't mean that they can't do a front kick the same way as everybody else. It just might take them a slightly different way to get to that point. Uh, there's just so many variables. And we, we've built up somewhat of a, a, an unexpected expertise in, in the, um, the autism. Uh, it wasn't our goal, uh, and we've spoken to our parents on a number of occasions, do they want separate classes for the kids on the spectrum? And the overwhelming answer is no, because they need to learn to deal with regular people. Definitely. So by segregating all the autistic kids into the one class, uh, all they get to deal with is other autistic people. And, and to be quite honest, most autistic people don't want that. Yeah. That's, that's awesome. Damien, that, that can probably spark a whole new episode. And, and I'll be happy to have you on again if anyone's got, got questions about that. I know, you know, from, and I've always mentioned this in our Martial Arts Media Academy program, you, you just got to be so careful where you get advice from. It's, it's easier, you know, Facebook has made it easier for everybody to connect, but some people should not have an opinion verbally <laughs> it's it's just a fact you know i mean if you um and joe rogan actually says it the best you know if you get a million people there's going to be a hundred thousand assholes that don't know what's going on out of every hundred thousand or thousand but and those are mostly the most vocal ones so it's very easy to just take advice because every comment looks equal but you don't know the background of that person what they've done their ethics their education so yeah you've got to be so careful um, one of the one of the ones that comes up regularly is the the uh, link between uh, actually I'm going to rephrase that because there is no link, but the purported link between autism and um, vaccinations. Now the the doctor who's no longer a doctor because he lost his medical license uh, who did that study had a financial interest in another uh, vaccination. Uh, he fabricated a report and a link on no evidence whatsoever so that he could sell his vaccination. Now, he got caught and it was all redacted and the Lancet redacted the, the report and so on. But that myth since then, since Wakefield's report, has perpetuated itself and the internet is making it worse and worse and worse and worse to the point where diseases like polio and whooping cough and so on are making a comeback. They were all but eradicated. Uh, because people don't want their children to catch autism. <laughs> it's not something that you catch. But uh, there are some good organizations out there that are doing training. I'm doing a presentation, or my wife and I are doing a presentation for the Titans event in May um, on working with kids on the spectrum and would just like to get more information out there so that people are not traumatizing these kids with something that should be profoundly helpful. Fascinating. Awesome stuff. For, any, for anybody, um, um, there's a, and you know, just a, and we'll, we'll close, probably close it off here, but uh, there's a book, Trust Me, I'm Lying by Ryan Holiday. 
Um, if you ever want a true perspective of how media can get manipulated, um, he was a self-confessed media manipulator. His job was to plant rumors, spread them, create the media behind it. There would be rallies um, until they saw the, the consequences of people dying because of um, fake news spreading in such a way that the consequences kick in. Um, it's, it's a brilliant read just to get a perspective of uh, don't get your all your information from a, a Facebook post because that article was probably written with intent or paid by someone to write and they did their own research with whatever they could find and they wrote it and put it together and it creates a perception where the intent was really just to disrupt. So yeah, probably a good way to to end that off. <laughs> no problem. Awesome. Hey, David, thanks. Thanks again for coming on. If anybody wants to get in touch with you and learn more about you, where, where, where should they go? Uh, best point of contact would either be via our um, website, which you mentioned earlier, www.southerncrossmartialarts.com uh, or Facebook. is probably the easiest way. Uh, I'm not good with telephones. <laughs> Skype video works. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All right, awesome. Thanks, David. No worries. Thanks for being on. I'll speak to you soon. Cheers. Cheers. Bye. Ladies and gentlemen, that will conclude this evening's entertainment. Thanks for listening. If you need help building your martial arts school, check out martialartsmedia.com.